And that's why sometimes you have to help people physically and emotionally and psychologically before they are ready and able to respond to the gospel. It's it's hard for hungry people to hear the gospel. It's hard for people in brutal poverty to hear the gospel. It's hard for people in slavery to hear the gospel. So sometimes you have to do something before you preach the gospel, even though preaching the gospel is the ultimate goal in all legitimate Christian mission. Preaching the gospel is always ultimate, but it's not always immediate or initial in terms of the order of operation. If if people are broken in spirit, if people are enduring harsh slavery, then they're not going to be able to respond to good news the way they should, the way they would. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Preaching the gospel is always ultimate, but it's not always immediate or initial in terms of the order of operation. That's pretty helpful to see, and it comes in the context of a very encouraging reminder of God's gentleness and mercy towards His people. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 6. This chapter represents a low point and a very important transition. At the end of chapter 5, the people of Israel were in terrible distress. Far from winning their freedom, the initial efforts of Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh on their behalf had only resulted in further difficulties and increasing brutality. Pharaoh had responded to Moses' request by turning the screws on these unfortunate people. Moses, of course, was devastated. He was an uncertain leader to begin with. And this initial failure did nothing for his fragile self-confidence. Moses went to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Close quote. So that's the low water mark in the narrative. But, of course, if you're a Bible reader, you know that this is exactly the time and exactly the place where God tends to show up in our stories. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now, by the way, this is one of my favorite but passages in the Bible. That's B-U-T, to be clear. Many of the best stories in the Bible have a but in them. We think of Ephesians 2, for example, which says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. These are rescue stories, intervention stories, stories of God's grace meeting people in seemingly impossible situations. Never forget, friends, that the Exodus story is intended to function as an illustration of the gospel. And thus, it must be a work of unexpected, unwarranted, and undeserved grace from start to finish. And so it is. And it is also, as was discussed in the last episode, a confrontation between God 
and a lesser power. The ESV does much better than the NIV in bringing this point out in verse 1, but the JPS Torah commentary translation is one step even better. It renders verse 1 this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, You shall soon see what I will do to Pharaoh. He shall let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of a greater might, he shall drive them from his land. That is exactly what is being communicated by the Hebrew text. Pharaoh will soon realize that he is not the God of Egypt. There is a much greater power in this universe that has entered the battle on behalf of this ragtag band of slaves, and Pharaoh must bow before him. That's the point. God has to defeat our enemies. God has to show himself strong on our behalf in order to set us free. And so he will. And so he promises in verses 2 to 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord, closed quote. Now, as has been mentioned already, the name Yahweh was known to the earlier patriarchs. The name is used several times in the book of Genesis. So what God is saying here is not that no one knew his name. He is saying rather that no one knew what the name really meant. No one had truly seen or experienced his power as a redeemer. God is telling us what his name says about who he is with respect to his covenant people. This is another example of progressive revelation. The patriarchs knew that God was powerful. He was El Shaddai, but they had never experienced him as a kinsman redeemer. They had never seen his power applied in such a personal and redemptive way. And so God is answering Moses' fears and doubts with further revelation of his essential character and nature. Now, by the way, let's just pause and appreciate that. When we are afraid, when we're doubting ourselves, when we're suffering, what we need is not a pep talk. What we need is not someone to blow sunshine at us. What we need is a deeper understanding, a more intimate encounter with our God. That's what these verses are giving us. That's what they're saying. That's what they're providing Moses. That's what they're telling us. I love what J. Alec Machir says here. He says, who then is Yahweh the Lord? In what ways do these verses supply what was held back in Genesis and extend what was taught in Exodus 3, 13 to 15? They tell us that the Lord keeps his word, verse 4, feels our woes, verse 5, sets us free, verse 6a, brings us close to himself, verse 6b, and verse 7, and 
that he will eventually lead us home. Verse 8, close quote. <laughs> Amen. Those truths were obviously enough to encourage Moses and to sustain him in his sense of mission. Verse 9 says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So here we see that this fresh revelation encouraged Moses, but it did not have much of an effect on the Israelites because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. We sometimes say that we read the Bible to learn about God, about us, and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. Well, here we're learning some very important things about us, about human beings. It's hard for people to hear and respond to good news the way they should when they are broken and crushed in spirit. And that's why sometimes you have to help people physically and emotionally and psychologically before they are ready and able to respond to the gospel. It's it's hard for hungry people to hear the gospel. It's hard for people in brutal poverty to hear the gospel. It's hard for people in slavery to hear the gospel. So sometimes you have to do something before you preach the gospel, even though preaching the gospel is the ultimate goal in all legitimate Christian mission. Preaching the gospel is always ultimate, but it's not always immediate or initial in terms of the order of operation. If if people are broken in spirit, if people are enduring harsh slavery, then they're not going to be able to respond to good news the way they should, the way they would. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this passage. But thankfully, that doesn't keep God from working. The people can't hear, but God can still work. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I think that's a very important distinction. You said in the program audio that, quote, Preaching the gospel is always ultimate, but it's not always immediate or initial in terms of the order of operation. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Because I know what you don't mean by that, but I just want to be sure that everyone else is seeing that as well. Yeah, I'm aware that a person might hear that as if we were saying that there is something more important in missions than preaching the gospel. And, and we're definitely not saying that. But there are some things we might have to do first. So to use a farming analogy, the most important thing in farming, obviously, is sowing the seed, watering the seed, caring for the seed. And yet there might be some things you have to do before that. You might have to cut down some trees. You might have to remove some rocks from the field. You might have to turn over the sod. Those are all things you might have to do before you do the maximally important work of sowing and tending the seed. All right. So practically speaking, what might that look like? What sort of stuff might we have to do before we preach the gospel to a lost and hurting people? Well, of course, it depends on where you are, and it depends on who you're working with. I know when I was doing some work in India, a lot of the pre-evangelism there consisted of teaching people to read, uh, specifically teaching women to read. I saw one program firsthand, for example, where the local churches were offering free reading lessons to poor women in rural areas. And these women wanted to read because it would help them in their business endeavors. If they were selling vegetables or cloth, uh, whatever they were selling, it was helpful for them to be able to read. And so the churches used the Bible to teach these Hindu women how to read, and it was fantastic. All the women there were so eager to show me their Bibles and to demonstrate their progress in reading. So it was a win-win for everybody. 
The women learned how to read and the churches were able to set the table, as it were, for future explicitly evangelistic conversations by teaching a basic skill without which Christian conversation is rather difficult to have. Now, historically speaking, wherever Christian missionaries have gone, they have started by teaching people to read. Many languages in the world were only written down when missionaries came into the area and wanted to share the gospel. They understood that they have to teach people to read if they're going to be able to have those gospel conversations that they want to have. So that's one example. Another example also comes from my time in India. We were invited into an effort by the government to eradicate child labor in India. It was technically illegal, but it was still widely practiced in rural areas. So our partners set up rehabilitation schools, and we would basically redeem children out of labor arrangements and then enroll them in these schools that were designed to get them back up to grade level. And along the way, as part of the curriculum, we taught them the gospel. But the point is, you can't just preach the gospel to an eight-year-old who's stuck in slavery. You have to buy them out. You have to love them, care for them. Then you probably have to teach them to read and see to their basic health and nutrition. And then when that's all in place, they're ready to hear and love the gospel. And we may have to do that kind of thing locally as well in terms of addiction. It's hard to hear the gospel if you're strung out on crack. So we do this to facilitate that. That's the idea. That's what I mean when I say that preaching the gospel is ultimate, but not always immediate or initial in terms of the order of operations. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Thanks for that. All right. Let's return to the story. Verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This effectively brings us to the end of this section in the book of Exodus. That's why we have the genealogy placed here as we see it. It's a literary device. Nahum Sarnas is here. This interruption, the interruption of the coming genealogy, is not an interpolation, but a literary device that definitively marks off the first stage in the process of liberation, the unavailing human efforts from the coercive intervention of God that will ensue the ten plagues. At the same time, it links the time of the Exodus with the patriarchal period because a genealogy inherently symbolizes vigor and continuity. Its presence here also injects a reassuring note into the otherwise despondent mood. Closed quote. I feel like that's worth quoting at length because the insertion of these genealogies always seems odd to us. It, it, it feels like a giant speed bump when, in fact, these genealogies serve a very definite purpose and function. So verses 10 to 13 provide a bit of a summary that we just read. Moses was encouraged and reaffirmed in his mission. And now we have this very important genealogy, which brings this section to a close. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans 
of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimi, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Now, as stated above, this is not a speed bump. This is an intentionally designed literary feature. It says, first of all, what is happening now is connected to what happened to our faith family back in patriarchal times. Remember, the book of Exodus begins with the word and. So right from the start of the book, the author has been asserting an essential connection between this story and the story contained in the book of Genesis. So let's hear that story again. The whole story of Exodus is told in miniature in Genesis 15, 13 to 16. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Closed quote. So this is that, Moses is saying. Things are not out of control. This is exactly how God told our great-great-grandpa that things were going to go. So that's the primary purpose of this genealogy, to show how present events connect seamlessly to prior promises. But in addition, there are also several marvelous complexities, mysteries, and evidences of authenticity that delight the attentive reader. Consider, for example, the fact that in verse 20, it says that Moses' father married his father's sister. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Well, that's odd because according to Leviticus 18.12, that's against the law. Leviticus 18.12 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. 
But of course, the law hadn't been written yet. So this was not illegal or immoral per se, which is just an interesting reminder that, first of all, this must be a very old and authentic genealogy. There's no way this would have been written this way after Leviticus 18.12 had been written. So this is received by most scholars as evidence of antiquity. It's also a reminder that Moses, the lawgiver, was himself a sinner. His whole story was about sin, ignorance, inability, and failure, which, of course, made him a perfect candidate to serve as a prophet of grace and redemption. Now, notice also that Moses and Aaron are listed as the fourth generation after the patriarchs which would seem to suggest that the people of Israel were only in Egypt for around 160 years. But that brings us back to the challenge of knowing just how these words and concepts are being used. It is entirely possible that at some point in the past, the past with respect to Moses and Aaron, 100 years meant roughly a generation, even though later in the Bible, in fact, by this time in the Bible, roughly 40 years became the standard understanding of a generation. So, 400 years in Genesis 15, 13 might have originally just meant four generations. After all, lifespans were longer in the past, so it might have taken a while for the terminology to shift. So it could be that the Israelites were only in Egypt for 160 years, or or it could be that there are gaps in the genealogy that, that we just read. Douglas Stewart, for example, says virtually all Old Testament genealogical lists are selective by mentioning only the generations of Levi, Kohath, Amram, and then Aaron slash Moses, it could seem to give the impression that there were, in fact, only four generations from the entrance into Egypt until the Exodus closed. Quote, so Stuart seems to favor the idea that the Israelites were in Egypt for around 400 years and that there are simply gaps in the genealogical table. And that is certainly possible. So was it four generations or 400 actual years. We just don't know. We don't know enough about the language, the traditions, or the history to say for sure exactly which interpretive option is preferable. Now, in terms of how the genealogy is put together, it starts at the beginning with Reuben, the firstborn son. But then, and it goes down from there. And then as soon as it gets to Levi, it goes down his line from there because that's the genealogy that we're most interested in. That's the genealogy that tells us about Moses and Aaron. So this genealogy also serves to credential Moses and Aaron, and it goes all the way down to Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. We presume that he was just a young boy, definitely under the age of 20, perhaps a babe in arms at the time of the Exodus. The name Phinehas is an interesting one. It's an Egyptian name that literally means Ethiopian or black man. So Eleazar must have married a woman from the southern region of the Nile. We wonder, of course, what was he doing there? Was he, was he on a work project? The, the Hebrews, of course, were slaves, so it's possible this woman was also a slave. There's so much we don't know and so much that we wish we knew about the story. But it is interesting to realize that one of the heroes of the Exodus and Wandering period, Phinehas, who grew up and became a champion of orthodoxy and, and purity and fidelity to God, who had great leadership and courage, was a black man. That needs to be inserted into our mental imagery as we read through this story. Those are just a few of the fascinating insights that come to us 
out of these generally overlooked biblical genealogies. These are real stories about real people who were touched and saved and changed and used by the grace of Almighty God. Hallelujah. The story concludes with a short summary in verses 28 to 30. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is still uncertain of himself, but he is growing in his understanding and knowledge of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I feel like I'm in the exact same place as a believer, uncertain of myself, but growing in my understanding and knowledge of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.